The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Um, the soundtrack underneath a movie is such an impactful and important part of any movie. And sometimes maybe, I know for at least for me, I get so engrossed in what's happening on the screen, I'm not really appreciating how much the, the actual movie is bolstered by what the composer has written, the soundtrack underneath it. But it, it makes a huge difference. And I just want to illustrate that with you. Um, I want to play a particular movie opening that um, I, I'm personally impacted by. It's just, I think the, the way the movie opens is so inspiring and especially uh, the music itself is just really, really beautiful. And so I just want to illustrate by just showing the first few seconds of a particular uh, movie that, that I appreciate. I think it's had a major impact on our world, on my life. And so um, let me just go ahead and play this clip. Go ahead, go ahead and play the clip. Check it out. Wow, it just takes me somewhere when I hear that. I mean, Star Wars. I have a special place in my heart for Star Wars. Some of you know that. I'm a little bit of a Star Wars nerd. Yeah, thank you. I just needed one last little bit there. Um, our sound guy's a Star Wars nerd, too. Okay, um, anyway. No, I love Star Wars, and it, it opens up, okay, in the opening title every time. Like every movie, it takes me back. I get nostalgic, but it's this, the opening theme is this big, you know, sound, and all of a sudden there's Star Wars, and then you're about to see what comes next. But essentially what comes next is not like lightsaber battles. It's reading. Like that's what comes next. It's like this scroll, but the music is like so profound. You're like, this is gonna be important. Like I better lean forward and read what it is. But like the music really makes it. And so like, just to illustrate how much the music kind of makes that moment, we took like another nostalgic soundtrack and put it with the opening of Star Wars. And it really has like a different feel. Like check out an alternate beginning to Star Wars. Check it out. You, you guys know what that is, right? Give it to me. What is that one? <laughs> Mario. Hello. Like some of you are like, hello, it's Mario. Okay. Okay, completely different feel, all right? Like you start Star Wars with the Mario Brothers soundtrack, it's different. I mean, John Williams opening theme, it's like a fanfare of grandeur. It's like you're about to witness the most important thing in the galaxy and you're like leaning forward. Mario Brothers is like, oh, this is going to be cute. Like, th this is going to be neat, okay? Like, the, the music creates just such an expectation. That's what I love about, about what John Williams did. I mean, he's a legend for doing this. Like, he has a way of setting the tone with the music. It stirs us up. It creates this expectation. Whereas, you know, you just, you know, slap on Mario Brothers. And, and like, nothing against that Mario Brothers soundtrack. In fact, I will have that stuck in my head for the rest of the day. I mean, nothing against that. But like, it just kind of cheapens it to just slap on Mario Brothers to the beginning of Star Wars. But man, there's this soaring expectation. And really, part of the function of music, especially when we bring it into the, the worship context, has to do with music and our expectations of what happens. What happens when the music is playing. 
So what we've been talking through in this, in this series is how really when you look at it like anthropologically, music is just so tied into being human. Like you don't find a culture without music. You can underestimate the function of music like as a human. And the same is true. I mean, if God wired humanity, if God made us, there's a God, he's the creator, he made us, then he made that dynamic. And what we see from the scripture is that actually music is tied into being human, but it's also probably more tied into, well, at least the Testament of scripture is, it is much more tied into our worship than we realize. Like music is much more of a part of our relationship with God, our spirituality, the way we connect with God, the way we grow with God, the way we mature with God. Music is, has much more of a function in our relationship with God than many of us realize. Some of us take that for granted. Other of us are like, well, I'm just not really an artsy musical person. But here's the testimony of scripture. Well, just one factor is the largest book of the Bible by a long shot is the book of Psalms. And it's just packed with hymns and songs and psalms instructing us, commanding us to sing to the Lord. There's a reason this is part of the command and tradition of God's people from the very beginning. And so we're exploring that. What is the function of music in our relationship with God? And so I want to take you to a psalm, Psalm 50. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open to Psalm 50. Uh, we're going to take a look at this psalm. What we're doing in this series is not just looking at psalms, but we're looking at the psalm writers uh, in the psalms. And so what I want to just start with, we're just going to look at the title. It's very brief, just a few words. But before we get into Psalm 50, let's just look at the title um, of Psalm 50. Very simply, it just says, a psalm of Asaph. This is preserved there in the scripture. This is part of the scripture. And this tells us who, who the author is. Now, through this series, we've been looking at the, the authors. There's 150 psalms. About 50 of them are written anonymously. Over 70 of them are written by David. David is um, the, the main psalm writer. 70 of them are written by the David, the famous King David. We talked about David and his life uh, in, in part one of the series and how God picked as the, the main king of Israel, as the fountainhead king of Israel. He, he chose a worshiper. He was a warrior, but he's also a worshiper, and he was a songwriter. God chose as the, the king that um, from David, all of the kings of Judah would come from his line and ultimately the Messiah would come from his line. And God chose David, a warrior worship leader, to be the fountainhead of that dynasty. And we talk about how David built a culture of worship in his kingdom. He had thousands of worship leaders and songwriters and he wrote more, more songs than any of them, it, it seems. And God chose him to be the king. Then we looked at another one of the songwriters, a group called the Sons of Korah. And they wrote 11 of the Psalms. They're another main Psalm writer. We looked at that at part two of our series. And their backstory is covered way earlier in the Bible in the book of Numbers. And they have an incredible story of redemption and grace. And in the descendants of a guy named Korah, you have these incredible worship leaders and the personality of their Psalms are some of the most explicitly affectionate to God. 
because it, and it comes right out of the grace and redemption they've experienced. So now we come to this guy named Asaph. He's another one of the songwriters. He's actually wrote the second most Psalms to David. He wrote 12. Most of his Psalms are in the 70s and 80s. So Psalm 73 to 83, but you have this one Psalm in Psalm 50. Now, let me just give you a couple things. I'm just going to nerd out a little bit on Asaph before we jump into the Psalm, just to give you a little background on him, because uh, there's two things you need to know about him that helps us understand a little bit of the context of this Psalm. Here's the first thing. Asaph, um, it's explicit in the text um, when David sets up his kingdom and sets up all of these worship leaders, David makes Asaph his chief worship leader. Asaph is like the worship pastor of Israel. He's the main guy. And there's all this infrastructure and there's a few chiefs, but Asaph is the main guy. To illustrate that, let me just, I'm going to bounce to just a couple passages real quick. Um, 550 years after David and Asaph lived, they look all the way back. And in the book of Nehemiah, here's how they remember that era. It says this, for long ago in the days of David, and Asaph, were, there were directors of singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. When they summarize the day of David and the worship, it just says David and Asaph. That's how big of a deal Asaph is. So he was the chief, the main worship leader. He was a singer. He was a musician. He was a songwriter. And uh, probably intimidating for him to serve a king who wrote songs so prolifically. But David made Asaph um, his main worship leader during his kingdom. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know about Asaph, and this is a little bit interesting. We wouldn't necessarily expect this about the, how they viewed their worship leaders. They saw Asaph as a prophet. This is how he's described. And he's described like this in several different occasions. This is 300 years later, not 500 years like in the day of Nehemiah. This is in the day of Hezekiah. This is 300 years later, looking back to the day of David and Asaph. Look how they describe him. This is in 2 Chronicles 29. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down in worship. They refer to David in the, or to Asaph in those days as a seer. It's another Hebrew word for a prophet. In fact, um, he's so often associated with this role of a prophet that one of his psalms, one of Asaph's psalms that he wrote is quoted by Matthew in the New Testament. And when Matthew quotes it, he doesn't say the psalm. He doesn't say Asaph. He says, as the prophet said, and then quotes part of his psalm. Asaph is referred to as a prophet. Now, this is interesting. You're like, okay, what's the big deal? You know, Asaph kind of had this dual role as a, <clears throat> excuse me, a worship leader, songwriter, and prophet. God spoke through him. Like, what's the big deal? Well, this is not just Asaph. This gives us a window into how they viewed their worship ministry. This is very different than maybe what we think in modern times. Listen to what it says about, um, about their worship ministry. This is in the days of David. This is 1 Chronicles 25. Let me just read this one more verse and we'll get back to Psalm 50. But this is, look, look what he says. David and the chiefs of the service also, that would include Asaph as one of the chiefs, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart 
for the service, for the service, the sons of Asaph, that's probably the young men he's training, the sons of Asaph and of Haman and of Jejuthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. This is something that should stretch us as, as moderns. David sets up this worship ministry. What's the purpose? Anchor the hearts of God's people to not worship idols, but to worship God. They write songs. These songs are pouring out affection. You've got these sons of Korah pouring out affection. But the chief worship leader, Asaph, and the men he was training, and the other men that the other chiefs were training, who were also musicians and worship leaders, they saw them as doing a work that is prophetic. You say, like, what does that mean? Like, what does that look like? That means when they were singing, when they were songwriting for Israel, what they saw happening in that moment is that God is speaking during that moment of musical worship. God is speaking through the songs that they're writing. They're not just writing pretty songs and pretty poems and setting them to worship so that everyone's like, wow, that made me feel good. That was a shot in the arm. It's that when people gathered together and they sang these songs that their worship leader and songwriters wrote and led them in, it was like God had directed it for the moment and the people were struck like, wow, this song was for me right now. God, you were in this moment. There was a sense of the prophetic in the moment, and that was very clear in how they saw the worship, the worship ministry. You follow me? Okay. There was a sense of the prophetic. Their worship and their music was a place where God was speaking. All right. Let's illustrate that with this particular psalm of Asaph, Psalm 50. Now, I want to approach this psalm. We're going to do it a little bit differently. I want to approach this psalm in two ways. We're going to read through the psalm, but I want to look at it both from the outside and the inside. I want to look on the outside of the psalm and see what is God doing through Asaph in the way he's writing this psalm. I want to look at it kind of from the outside. But I also want us to receive this psalm from the inside to actually receive the content of the psalm for our hearts as if God had designed for each one of us to hear this psalm today. Follow me? Okay. Let's walk through this psalm. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to look at the first few verses. Psalm 50, verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones. Notice this is a quote. He's quoting God here. Gather to me, my, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Okay, pause with me there. It just as these first six verses. Let's set the stage. What is, uh, what is Asaph writing in this psalm? He imagines God. He uses this big language for God. 
the mighty one. Notice how often, you'll notice this all through the psalm, he talks about God speaking, calling, not keeping silence. Later, those who are held accountable for ignoring his voice. This is a God who speaks. He's, he's calling all the earth to come before him. He's summoning all the earth to stand before him. They're, they're, this is intimidating is the sense. I mean, it is a call. He's going to have them stand before him and give an account. I want you to imagine. It's like the bigness of God, the rumbling of God. Mountains are shaking. Oceans are, are pulling back. Apex predators are cowering. Humans are becoming weak at the knees. God is arriving and he's calling, summoning. He could summon the whole universe, but he's standing over earth and he's calling earth to give an account. The mightiness, the the bigness, the power, the holiness of God, it starts off with. And they're coming before God. All of earth is coming before God, and he's going to ask them to give an account. You see, actually, it then quotes him. You see a sense of the prophetic in here, right? Because he's actually quoting God. God is speaking through what Asaph is saying. He's saying, gather to me. Now, specifically, who is he gathering? Yes, all the earth. He's coming for all the earth. But specifically, he's calling forth his people. It's the people of, he's like, my people. He's bringing his people out and he's actually got a word for his people. He's actually going to hold his people accountable for something. He's actually going to bring judgment before his people. So if we're, we're reading this and we're reading this with a sense of the prophetic that God is speaking something, he's got a message for his people. But I want to just pause for a second. Look how he describes his people. He describes his people as those who have a, a covenant of sacrifice with him. Now, this was the way um, we, we use like the phrase sacrificial lamb. Like we use that in just modern vernacular. That's a phrase that we use. That actually comes straight from the Bible because the way in the Old Testament humans would interact with God is they would come to the temple and they would bring a sacrifice. Maybe it was a lamb, maybe it was a bull, maybe it was a goat, depending on what the sacrifice required. They would bring the sacrifice. Why? Sacrifice would get offered, it'd be killed, it would lay uh, on the altar, and it would be an offering to God. Why did they bring that sacrifice to God? Well, because um, to enter into the presence of a holy God, immediately we are, to, we are reminded that we are not holy. None of us are. We like to say, well, I'm a good person, but we're coming before not a good God, a holy God, perfect God. And we have bad thoughts, we lack integrity sometimes. We, um, we cheat or lie or are jealous or envious or covet or have pride or arrogance or unforgiving, bitterness. We have all kinds of sins in our life. And to stand before a holy God, we deserve the punishment and wrath of God. So God set up the system of bring a substitute where this dies in your place. They, the blood of this animal is shed instead of on you because otherwise we would deserve the wrath of God. It is a covenant with them. He set the system up. It's a covenant of sacrifice. Now, this is not how the average person in South Florida, if you tapped them on the shoulder and asked them, what's the arrangement with God? It would not be a covenant of sacrifice. There's no sacrifice needed. Our view of God is much different. I was reminded of that. Just pervasively, our view of God is different. I was reminded of that. Um, this past Christmas, uh, Rebecca and I were watching the movie Home Alone 2 with our kids. Anyone seen uh, Home Alone 2 before? You remember it? 
Um, it might be the best Home Alone. I mean, it's a great one. I love the first one. Second one's amazing as well. Um, some of my favorite Christmas movies, the Home Alones. Well, in Home Alone 2, do you remember there's the pigeon lady? You guys remember the pigeon lady? Yes. Well, there's that one like heart-to-heart -heart moment that he has with the pigeon lady. And she asks him, she asks Kevin, she says, Kevin, what are you doing here all by yourself? He's like, have you done something wrong? He's like, oh, I've done a lot of things wrong. And she says, well, don't you know how it works? This is morality according to Home Alone 2, okay? She says, don't you know that every good deed erases a bad deed? And um, he says, yeah, I've done a lot of bad deeds. I don't think I have time to, to cover that with all the good deeds. And then she says, well, it's Christmas Eve. Good deeds count extra tonight. Okay. And then that is like, okay, now it's just a sweet moment with the pigeon lady. All right. But like that kind of sets up the moral framework of Home Alone 2. And we look at that like, okay, it's just a, it's just a, a kid's movie so we can watch people get pe pelted with paint cans. Like that's like, that's really what Home Alone 2 is. But I mean, think about that for a second. That is actually really what we think. We think here's what it matters with God. It just matters that I'm, if I've just been good enough. Like we all know I've done some bad, I've done some good. Let's just hope in the end I'm mostly good, which of course I am. Like let's just hope I'm mostly good so I've done enough good to outweigh my bad. I mean, that's just basically what our generation believes, like the vast majority. Even some who carry the name Christian, who go to church, like we operate, well, as long as I'm a basically good and religious person and not a bad person, like that one coworker I have, as long as I'm not like them, like I, I'm basically a good person and I'm going to make it. But let's just stop and think about that. Would that work for you? I want you to imagine um, you drive a, a Toyota Yaris and let's say you've driven it for 10 years and why have you driven this Yaris? Because you're saving up because you've got a dream car, okay? And you've been saving up, you're driving that Yaris and you love it. It gets you from here to there, but you've got a dream. And one day, you take your, your uh, Yaris and you, 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 uh, you, you turn it over and you take all the money you saved up and you buy a Lamborghini. I mean, you're the other pole. Like your friends are like, what happened? You know, how did you get this kind of money? Okay, and you've been saving up, right? You get a Lamborghini and you get it like a, a matte black paint color so it looks like the Batmobile. I mean, it is perfect, okay? And, you, and you're driving to Publix one day and you back it in way in the back, all right? You back it in, okay, and a guy, and you're, you're about to get out with your Lamborghini, you know, doors, all right, and someone's parked next to you, and they've just come from Publix, and as you get out, you take one step away, and they pull out of the parking lot, and you just hear, scratch all the way down your Lamborghini. I mean, just scraping down. I mean, the paint's gone, it's dented, the side mirror explodes, okay, and it's like pulling out, and you're just like, you're speechless. You're like, my new Lamborghini. And the guy pulls over and he rolls down the window, okay? And he says, he's like, because he doesn't have power windows apparently. I don't know, all right? He has a really old car, I don't know. He rolls down his window. <laughs> and five minutes later when it's down, okay, he looks out the window and he says, Man, I'm so sorry. That's a beautiful car. I really messed up. I can't believe I did that to you. Oh, he says, but you know what? I just bought some Girl Scout cookies, so we're good. <laughs> and drives away. We're not good. 
okay? We're not good. There's a few things wrong with that. First of all, you hit my Lamborghini, I will tell you when we're good. You don't decide for yourself when you're good and drive away. Secondly, you just spent $13 on Thin Mints. This here is not $13 worth of damage. But you've decided, well, I did a bad good, but I did a good, de good, good deal, and so like, I, I think this is going to work out and drive away. That's what we're doing, and we know it doesn't work. It's not even logical. We say, yes, I know I've sinned against you and broken your law, holy God. But I did this good deal, this good deal, uh, this good deed over here, and I am deciding that that's enough. And God graciously, but urgently from his word says, you have broken my law. I will tell you what justice looks like. You don't determine it. I don't determine it. God determines it. It's a sin against holy God. Second problem is we think our thinments make up for our sins. But the scripture tells us, he says, here's what justice looks like. You sin against an eternal God. It's an eternal punishment. So you commit one sin and justice for that one sin is an eternity away from God in hell. That's what justice looks like. So you say, I can't pay that. And he says, I know you can't, but I love you, so I'm going to make a covenant with you of a sacrifice where you don't absorb the cost of your sin, but there's a substitute that does. His people are those who have a covenant of sacrifice. He has drawn all of his people together. He draws all of his people together and he says, I am calling you because I have a word to speak to you, a judgment over you. Now, what is this judgment? Let's read this next section. Let's pick it up in verse seven. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. This is God talking, and again, a reference to him speaking. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. What is he saying here? He says, listen, I'm not judging you because you haven't done the sacrifices. You have. There's abundant sacrifices. You bring your lambs, you bring your bulls, you bring your goats. You are doing all the sacrifices. Here's what I have against you, he says to his people. It's the heart, the motive with which you are bringing these sacrifices. 
He says, the, the, what I will accept from you is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. When you come with a heart of thanksgiving, that is worship. When you're coming to God saying, wow, I look back at what you've done and my heart is so full of thanksgiving that I'm offering this thanksgiving to you. He says, then if you offer with a heart of thanksgiving, I'll hear your prayer and I'll deliver you. I'll take care of you. I'll father you. I'll protect you. I'll wrap around you. It comes from a, a heart of thanksgiving. Well, if they're offering sacrifices and it's not from a heart of thanksgiving, what is it a heart with, with which they're offering a sacrifice? Like, what is the bad motivation? Well, he corrects it. He says, did you think you're bringing the sacrifice because I'm hungry? I'm not. He says, you, you think I'm hungry? I'm not. If I was hungry, I could speak another universe into existence and consume it. If I was hungry, I don't need you. I'm not hungry. He says, I have cattle on a thousand hills. He says, I'm, God says, I'm pretty wealthy. I'm good. I don't need anything from you. You have nothing I need. I'm not sitting back like, oh no, I hope they bring their sacrifices because I'm really struggling. Like I've, I've got things I, I need to do and I need them. He says, you have nothing I need. I'm self-sustained. If I needed something, which I never will, I can speak it into existence. And everything you have, by the way, he says to his people, actually belongs to me when you bring your lamb. You're bringing, that really belongs to me because everything in the, in the earth belongs to me, including you. Why would they bring something to God thinking they're bringing something God needs? That's just not logical. Like that defies the logic of God. They've moved into a relationship with God that is transactional. They think, well, I need his deliverance, so I'm going to bring these sacrifices. So like, you know, God, I mean, he really, really worked up about all these sacrifices. So I'm going to bring these sacrifices. I'm going to bring them to God. So God, look what I brought. Now I'm expecting you to work. See, so he says the real, the real heart of worship looks back with thanksgiving. A heart of, that's transactional is looking forward to something you want from God. And as if you have anything to barter with me over, you have nothing to barter with me that heart of transaction. And he's not saying, he's saying that's a spirit that is within his people. He's not correcting the world. He's correcting his people. Okay, well, hey, that's a good reminder. Sometimes we veer and it's a heart of thanksgiving. Got it, God. I mean, I want to do the right thing. Like, I don't want to have a heart of, that's, you know, that offends you. But look at the severity of it. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Let's read the rest of the psalm. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's sons. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. 
But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. He speaks to the wicked. And did you see how he starts? To the wicked, he says, what right have you to... recite my statutes and take your covenant on my lips. He's talking to the wicked among his people. There are people who are saying, yeah, I'm part of God's people. I take the title of God's people. I'm part of that covenant community. He says, you think you are part of God's people, but your transactional relationship with God is betraying that reality. This is not a little thing. God is calling them out and he uses strong language where he's saying, lest, he says, correct your ways, order your steps, lest I tear you apart. This is the God that is actively holding your and my molecules together. He has but to let up and we burst into oblivion. He says, order your steps, offer worship of thankfulness. He says, and then I will bring salvation to you. You say, man, this is hard to hear God like this. I I like the, the fatherly kind of God. This is the judgmental kind of God. Hear this. This is God showing us how to make him our father. If we are operating with God, like you need this God, and so I'm going to get this from you, then we don't realize all the transaction that he's already done has been done on the cross to already make us his father, make us his father. Um, he makes himself our father. He's already done everything that can be done for our, for our fatherhood. So if we're not coming to God in a sense of thankfulness, maybe we're not realizing he's already done all the work through the one ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. You know, the word here for salvation is yeshu. The, 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 the end here, he will bring the salvation of God, the yeshu of God. This psalm is aching for the one final sacrifice that will come through the ultimate Messiah, the son of David, the sacrificial lamb, the one who was the temple, and a human embodying the presence of God, the ultimate high priest to connect us with God. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was the sacrificial lamb. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He did exhaust all the wrath of God once and for all. That's why we no longer make sacrifices because there was one, we don't bring lambs and sheeps and bulls. It was a one-time sacrifice in Jesus. The transaction has happened. He needs nothing from us. And we accept that in thankfulness and then we walk in that salvation having the perfect fatherhood of God. But if we keep with this transactional relationship with God, We may not know that he's already done all the transaction through Jesus and still have wrath hanging over our lives. It's a calling to, to enter before God into worship with thanksgiving. These are the words of Asaph, the words that God is speaking through him to his people. So let's look at this in two ways. Let's just step outside the psalm for a second. Here's what I want you to see. When it comes to the musical worship of God's people, expect God to work with a sense of the prophetic in that time. 
Expect him to speak in that moment when we sing together in worship. You know, I, I think sometimes we have an expectancy of that in the, the preaching. In fact, like the, the number of times I've had someone come up to me afterwards or I've felt this when I hear other preachers or, or come up to some of the other uh, teachers here at City Rev and they're like, man, I can't believe that's the passage you taught. And I can't believe you talked about that this week. I was just talking about that with a friend or my spouse a couple days ago. It's like God knew and it's like, you know what God's doing? Wow, he's orchestrating all this. He's speaking through this moment when we gather together and we open up his word. But what we learn, it's explicit in the text. When God's people come together and sing, there's the same dynamic. And maybe you've experienced that. You come into, you come into worship and you're like, man, I, God, I don't, know how, I don't have much to give. And you just can't believe the lyrics of the song align, and it's exactly the comfort you needed. It's the reminder you needed. It's the rebuke that you needed. It's the, it's the reposturing of your heart that you needed. It's getting my, myself outside of myself so that I'm not the center and he's the center. He's orchestrated that. He's been working through our worship leaders as they're planning a worship set, maybe weeks before, and he's all tying it together and laying out the song so that when we come together in worship, he's like, I know what every one of you needs. I'm designing a moment where I'm going to work and speak through those moments. That's why we're so blessed to have songwriters on our team. Because just like Asaph, they're, they're writing songs that God's like, I'm giving you this song because City Rev needs this song. You need it and I need it. Come into the musical worship with expectancy, if I could urge you, come early, come before the service, before the music starts, prepare your heart in prayer. Say, God, you've selected these songs. You have something for me. Let it stir you with expectancy. Let the music stir you up with the expectancy that the God over the whole galaxy has a word for you. He's designed to work in your heart in that moment. That's how God's people have viewed worship. How sad and how much does it cheapen it when I come into worship just to hear pretty songs? And instead of a heart of expectancy, I have a heart of analysis, a heart of critique. And I sit back and I say, I'm going to wait till it's the song that's, I, I like fast songs. No, I like slow songs. I like loud songs. I like soft songs. I like old songs. I like new songs. I, I, I like modern songs. I like historic songs. Whatever it is, and we have like a, an analysis, a critique, and we look at the music and we critique it, and we're, we're not entering in with an expectancy. We're entering in with analysis. It's like cheapening the moment. God wants to work in that moment. He has a word for you as we're singing collectively a, a biblical truth. It's like a corporate prayer we're offering up, and he has designed that moment to begin working in your heart. But now let's step inside the psalm. Because God has a word he's spoken through Asaph that he then preserved in his word, so it was not just for Asaph's generation. You know, South Florida is one of the most lost cities in our country. Maybe three or 4% of people in Dade and Broward know the gospel. I'm mean, just the gospel of how to be saved about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and that alone saves you. Three to 4% of our entire city knows the gospel. It's one of the most lost cities in our country. Uniquely, it is not one of the most unchurched cities in the country. It's very churched. A shocking majority 
of South Floridians will say they are a Christian. The vast majority of South Florida would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And you say, I've been in traffic and I don't believe that. <laughs> we know there's a, there's a gap. What's the gap? You can count yourself and have the covenant of God on your lips. Count yourself as part of God's people but have a purely transactional relationship with God and not know the gospel. I don't want to talk about the Christians out there because God just collected this group of Christians in West Pines and Cooper City to talk to. So let's just look at ourselves. There's a type of Christianity that just takes a page from every other religion. It's no different than I do a rain dance and you water my crops. I dial up my Christianity and I get hashtag blessed. I need something from you, God, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start going to church a little bit more. Like, I stopped going to church as much and then, you know, my life got a little iffy, so now I'm back at church. Finances are, are, are really tight and I, I heard that if you give a little money, then I'll, that's how you release the blessings into your life. You know, I, I know that I, I should be better. I'm going to stop lying as much because, you know, I got to be more moral and I want his blessings. And we can have this very transactional relationship with God and we're taking a page out of every other religion around the world and throughout history and it defies the profundity of what the scripture says. There's no transaction you can have with God. He needs nothing from you. It's not about entering into a, a religion to justify you. Well, I've got the right religious title. I've got the, I do the right religious life. I have the right expression of my life in every category of my life. I do the right things. I think the right things. So I'm justified. It's not about a religion ju that justifies you. It's about a God who has rescued you. That's what it's about. The transactions already happened. The trans it's we go before God and say, I have nothing to offer you. I'm, I'm sinful, but you've had grace on me. And he says, yes, I've offered the ultimate sacrifice. The son of God has been torn apart so that you don't have to be that transaction. You just receive it as a gift, the death and resurrection of the son of God. You receive it as a gift and then you're receiving the fatherhood of God. And then all of your, all of your worship is offered back, not transactionally, not to give me something more. You've already given me everything. It's not give me something more. I don't worship to get more. I worship in thankfulness to what you've already done. How could I not give my worship to God? How could I not give my songs to God? How could I not lift up my voice and raise up my hands and sing to the Lord? How could I not run to church? I'm not running to church to get something from God. I run to church because that's where my father meets me. How could I not come into the presence of God? How could I not give generously to God? He expended the treasure of the universe for me. How could I not give my life to God? How could I not surrender my dreams to the one who's got a bigger dream over my life than I can imagine? How could I not do that? Of course, I give you everything, God, because you've already expended everything for me who did not deserve it. That's what he's calling us to, Christian. Hallelujah. Christian, there are some of you that are here and you're walking with the title Christian. Hear the word of the Lord. 
if, you have, if your life is about coercing God to bless you, you do not know the gospel and are not yet saved. Please hear the urgency of your father. Find the gospel and find the true faith. Jesus died and rose again. That is all you need for salvation. Now live a life of gratitude reflecting that reality. Christian, some of you, you know that, you know the gospel, you can articulate the gospel, you serve the gospel. Watch your heart. Because we can still find our hearts swaying back into transaction. And you're doing things in faith, but if you're honest, you're doing things not from thanksgiving, it's still out of transaction. Live a life that pours out thanksgiving. Offer songs and worship out of thanksgiving. And give what he deserves back to him. And watch how he speaks to you in those moments. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Christian who knows the gospel. Have you heard the word of God in your life? And maybe you're saying, God, I've been approaching you with my, my finances. I've been approaching you with, with my relationships. I've been approaching you with my, my devotions. I've been approaching you with my prayer, my songs. I've been approaching you still self-centeredly. I've been giving you those things transactionally and I know better and I repent of that. Ask him for a heart of thanksgiving. But to those of you who take the name of Christian, but do not know the gospel, you're still trying to be good enough. You're still trying to be religious enough, Christian enough. Find salvation today. It's about Jesus. Let him rescue you today. Be at rest that the work of Jesus alone is what saves you. So here's what I want you to do. With every head bowed, eyes closed, you here at the West Pines campus, at the Cooper City campus, even if you're watching online, no one's looking around, but if you want to find salvation, you want to repent of your dead religion and put your faith in Jesus for salvation. If you want to find salvation today, what I want you to do is no one's looking around, but lift your hand in the air so that God can see it. If you want to find salvation, praise God. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Let me lead you in a silent prayer right there in your seats. Just silently say, God, I know you hear me. I turn away from my dead religion and I run to a God who's rescued me. Thank you for the work that you've done through Jesus. I lift all this up in your name. Thanks Amen. for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.